0: Do you remember the story of Job? Uh, Satan accused God of stacking the deck in Job's favor. He said that uh, Job didn't really truly delight in God, he was just uh, delighting in God's gifts. You remember the conversation that Job had with, with, uh, or God had with Satan in the first chapter of Job? Uh, Listen to this. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So, of course, we know God turned Satan loose and uh, tested Job. And so the question is, did Job only delight in God because God provided for him? If you were put to the same test as Job was put, how would you fare? What would be the result of that test in your life and experience? If God removed his blessing and took back your material goods, your health, your family, what would it really truly reveal about your view of God, your love for him? In Job's case, of course, he proved that his delight was in God, actually. Uh, He he wasn't just in love with God because God provided gifts for him. Uh, God allowed Satan to take his home, his livestock, his family, his health. And Job, it seems, continued to delight in God. Listen to verses 20 and 21 of that first chapter of Job. Then Job arose, and this was after God had allowed Satan to remove Job's family by death, remove Job's health, remove Job's possessions. This is Job's response. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, "Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return." The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm not certain that'd be my response. So, is your delight in God? If so, why? Why do you delight in God? Why do you love Him? Is it because He keeps you in good standing? He keeps you fed, supplied, healthy. What if he were to allow the removal of those things? Well, today I wanna continue preaching to you about delight in God from Psalm 119 verses 14 through 16. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it with me to that great chapter, Psalm 119. We're gonna be looking at verses 14 through 16. Our focus will be 15 and 16, but I'll read all uh, three of those verses there here in a minute. I mentioned to you last week that the pursuit of God really is a pursuit of delight because God is the really source of all pure delight and absolute joy. And so when we pursue God, we're actually pursuing delight. So today I want to give you some handles that might assist you to hold on to this concept, to practically apply this concept of what it means to delight in God. And how you can really tell if you are in fact delighting in God versus His gifts. I felt like last week I encouraged you to pursue your ultimate delight in Him, but never really told you how to do that. And that's always a little bit frustrating, I know. So I'm going to try to do my best today to tell you how to wholeheartedly pursue delightfully in God. The reason I'm preaching to you from Psalm 119 is because I believe that Uh, the theme of Psalm 119 is the importance of the Word of God for each and every one of us. I'm convinced that it is in God's Word where we will not only find uh, the answer to life's problems and questions, the direction for living, the guidance in human relationships, and a path to heaven. We'll certainly find all those things there, but more importantly than all of that is God himself is there. And I want you as a church more than anything to encounter God. I want you people to know him personally because I'm, I'm convinced that if you know him, you'll delight in him. So um, to, to continue this introduction, uh, do you know what heaven is? Most erroneously believe that heaven is just a better version of earth, right? It's, it's We all enjoy things on earth and it's just more of that stuff, just better of it. Um, And there's no doubt that heaven is going to be awesome. And I think all of us are looking forward to being there. But hopefully it's not because we think our golf clubs will be made of gold or (laughs) our hammocks will be silk. Or we can eat as much food as we want and not get fat. You know, hopefully that's not our view of heaven. Heaven is going to be awesome because God is there. God is the reason that heaven is. He is what makes heaven. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 17. Eternal life is knowing you. So I want you to see that that this book, the, the, the Holy Bible, is to be the pathway to God and our enjoyment of him. And Psalm 119, as good as any other chapter, demonstrates this for us. So listen as I read verses 14 through 16 of Psalm 119. In the way of your testimonies I delight, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So I want you to see the emphasis of delight here. Uh, Today, I want you to see first of all the purpose of it. Why delight? What is the reason that God created delight and gave us a desire to experience it? Why? In verse 14, the author compares God's ways with earthly riches to demonstrate the superiority of God over all of his gifts. There's God, and then there's his gifts. And the author is saying God is better by far. This is what the story of Job is about, really. God's gifts have been designed to lead us to him. And so delight, the the experience, the emotion of delight, is really a gift from God that draws us to our creator. And so the the, the purpose of delight is to fulfill my purpose. Uh, So, what is my purpose? Well, I I want to quote a couple saints of yore and um, see if they might have something helpful for you. The first saint is St. Augustine, who in the year 386 found his freedom from the slavery to sin in the superior pleasures of God. So, the way he found his his release from his slavery to sin was looking at the pleasures found in God alone. He said, This, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove me from them, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. That's what allowed. Augustine to leave his life of sin. He saw that God was greater than all those things. So, how did this discovery for Augustine fulfill his purpose? The second saint I want to quote for you is Saint Edwards. You may not have heard of him, but he's a saint. Jonathan Edwards. His quote here helps us understand how Augustine's discovery of joy in God actually fulfilled Augustine's purpose and by default, yours and mine. Listen closely to Edward's words. The happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God by which God also is magnified and exalted. How's God magnified and exalted? By our happiness. Now, listen on. The end of the creation is that the creation might glorify God. Now what is glorifying God but rejoicing at the glory he has displayed? So there you have it. We have been created by God to delight in Him, to enjoy Him. God has given us an appetite for joy that can only be fully satisfied in Him. All these other things that that attract us in this world, all these gifts from God that are good, that we enjoy and we should enjoy, are not designed to be ends in themselves. They're designed to drag us, literally drag us into the presence of God so that we might enjoy him. So the purpose of delight is to fulfill our purpose, help us discover it and live there. Secondly, The purpose of delight is to strengthen our commitment. Our commitment to what? Our commitment to the source of that joy, the place where we find it revealed. And where's that? God's word. It's to strengthen my commitment to the word of God. That's the second purpose of delight. If rejoicing in God brings me the most delight and him the most glory, then I think it makes sense for us to open the book that reveals Him. Right? Let me say that again. If rejoicing in God brings me the most delight possible, and Him the most glory possible, then opening the book that reveals Him is critical. And what does this word do for us? Why does God design a delight to draw us into His word? Because... It's in his word that we find direction. God gives us direction in his word. He, he is delight, designed delight to, to guide our affections towards him. That's why, and I've said this a few times over the past couple of weeks, but I wanna make sure you hear it. That's why you're never satisfied with what you have. It's not intended to satisfy you. <laughs> it's intended to draw you to God, to draw you to him. So, so this, this affection, this, this delight for God as revealed in the word draws us closer and closer to God. And that's where we fully experience and enjoy God is in his word. I know we can enjoy him out in the, in, you know, the, the nature that he has provided for us to enjoy. That's good and well. But it's nothing compared to how he reveals himself here. This, this book is a pathway to God. Secondly, I want to say that the purpose of delight is to strengthen our commitment to the Word because that Word gives support. It gives support for our journey, our pilgrimage. Um, Delighting in God necessarily takes us to His Word because it's there where we find this, this help that God has promised to each of His children. It says in Psalm 119, verse 50, This is my comfort in my affliction, Do you have affliction? I know I do from time to time. Um, Where do we go when things get tough? Some magazine? (laughs) Some store? Where do we go when things get tough? The psalmist says this. This is my comfort and affliction. Your promises give me life. He went to the Word of God. And that's what I'm suggesting to you is the, the one of the main purposes of the word of God. God has granted delight to to deepen our commitment to the word so we'll find support for the difficulties we face. Thirdly, because this word removes worldly interests. The Puritan called these carnal vanities. But I thought you would relate better to worldly interests. The more we are drawn to Christ and his word, the less the world's draw is on us. Have you ever noticed that? The more you find yourself in the word, the less tempted you are by worldly things. The more time you spend with Christ and his people, the less influence and draw the world has on you. Says this in Psalm 119, this great chapter we're in, verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways, in your word. That's what that means. Your ways is another synonym for your word. So, when we have our eyes focused on God in His Word, it seems like everything else in the world of less importance just kind of fades off. What a blessing from God. Um, let me give you an example. I think all of us, to one degree or another, struggle with the fear of man. And I don't mean you're physically afraid of the person sitting next to you. You may be. I don't know exactly everybody you're sitting next to, but I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, our interest in other people's opinions. The fear of man. All right, we all struggle with that to one degree or another, right? Which is why we all kind of tend to look the same. And we all got the same kind of clothes on, we all have the same hairdos, Everything's because we're kind of afraid of how everybody thinks of us. So we fit in. This is uh, demonstrated very clearly in junior high school. All right, but it continues in our life and we struggle with it. The things we say, the what we wear, what we drive is because we're concerned about what people think about us. All right, now, one way to level the influence or lower the influence of of our concern about what people think is to raise our concern about what God thinks. If we were to put more emphasis on that side of the scale, it would tip in God's favor and we would care less and less about what other people think. We would care less and less about what they think about our clothing choices, our cars, our homes, everything because we're concerned with what God thinks. That's just an example of how the, the Word of God uh, kind of removes worldly interest from us the more we're involved in it. Fourthly, it lightens our burdens. So God has, has designed delight light to, to deepen our commitment in His Word because God wants us to not have a heavy burden, a heavy yoke to carry along our entire life. Jesus said, come to me. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. He doesn't want us to be just consumed with this heavy burden of following Christ and trudging through, you know, day to day, day to day. And so he's given us the word to to lighten our burden. I think we're all strange folks in this regard, Um, some stranger than others, but we complain over the difficulty of getting up early in the morning to read our Bibles or to attend the Timothy group, but we'll have all sorts of energy, all sorts of enthusiasm to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go hunting or fishing or shopping on Good Friday, right? I mean, I'll walk for miles to get into the perfect hunting spot, and some of you ladies will go stand in lines in front of stores on whatever that called, Black Friday, I think, horrible Friday I call it. <laughs> we all do these kind of things but we can't seem to carve out 15 minutes for prayer. That's just so laborious. <laughs> Lord help me. I'm suffering. The Word of God actually lightens that burden and causes the pursuit of God to be delightful. What a, what a joy Um, The point in this is that what we delight in, we have energy for, right? My mom used to have a little plaque right above the kitchen sink that says, attitude determines energy. And whenever I would complain about doing the dishes, she'd go, look at that plaque, John. (laughs) Somehow that plaque was lost. So how is it that we can make the things of God our delight? How is it that we can make God our delight and not burdensome? I want to hopefully point you in the right direction this morning. How is it that we can make pursuing spiritual things something that actually motivates us to get out of bed in the morning? How can we have attitudes like the psalmist here? I delight as much as in all riches, your word. I delight in your statutes. Man, I want that, don't you? Um, How can we have an attitude like Jeremiah who says this in chapter 15? Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. Or Paul in Romans 7, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now, sound good. Um, I want to give you some help, some handles in developing this kind of interest. But there's some uh, stepping stones that we need to take to get there. And, And the first is point number two. Um, this is the, the duty of delight. And I know this sounds a little counterintuitive, but I want you to bear with me for a second and follow along with me. The duty of delight, is it a Christian, it is, a, it is, is it a Christian duty to delight in God? A duty to delight in God. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, um, he says this, It is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. It's your duty to be happy. How would you like to say that to your kids? Listen, honey, (laughs) I'm requiring you to be happy right now. That always went well with our kids. Not. This is what John Piper says about the same thing. Maximum happiness is precisely what we are duty-bound to pursue. So how can delight be a duty? It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Delight and duty? I thought duty was those things we had to do, just get them done. Grit your teeth and bear it. You know, mm. but delight... One way to understand duty and delight and how they work together is to share with you one of Piper's famous illustrations about giving roses to your wife on her anniversary. Some of you may recall this illustration. But if it was our anniversary and I were to walk up to Sherry and hand her a dozen long stem roses and say, these are for you, honey, and she might say, oh, you, wouldn't have to, you don't have to do that for me, John. I'd say, Sherry, it's my duty. That's what husbands are supposed to do on their anniversary, and I've read this in a few books. There you go. That better not be my answer, right? If I want to survive the day. My answer had better be, and I pray that it would be, something more along these lines. Well, Sherry, um, I couldn't help myself. Those roses are very small, in fact, the smallest token I could find of my love for you. You make me so happy. That would be a better response, right? Yeah. Now, do you think Sherry would respond to that correct response by, oh, so it's all about your happiness? Is that how she would respond? If I were to say to her, Sherry, you make me so happy, would she say, oh, so it's all about your happiness? Of course she wouldn't. Why? Because when I find happiness, excuse me, in her, It honors her, right? It glorifies her in a sense. The same way that God is glorified when we find our delight in him. The very same thing. And so, yes, it is my duty to bring roses to my wife. Yes, it's my duty to bring honor and glory to God. But to do so delightfully makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. God is most glorified in us when he is our all-satisfying delight. Pursuing delight in God is necessary because that is the only way we can truly bring glory to him. If there are other things in this world that satisfy you more than God, then there's some work to do. And let me say something which the Holy Spirit is doing in every single believer. Okay? So between the time when God becomes our all-satisfying delight, some great day in the future, whenever that is, when he becomes our all-satisfying delight, between that day and today, is it possible to bring glory to God? Is God glorified in anything less than your complete delight in Him. And I want to make sure you hear this. Yes, it is possible. And here's why. It is true that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. But I believe that getting to that place also brings glory to God since He is the one who takes us down this path to start with. God is the one who draws us into this process of sanctification, what the Bible calls it, becoming like Jesus, becoming uh, so much like Jesus that God is our all-satisfying delight. That process is begun, orchestrated, and fulfilled because of God. Through the process of trial and error, teaching and preaching, learning, growing through disappointments and trials, we learn by the power of the Holy Spirit that God is truly the most satisfying. The Holy Spirit is our teacher and guide through the process, and so God gets the glory, even in the process. So as we wholeheartedly work towards this end of being supremely satisfied in God, he continues to receive glory in the process. So even if we don't presently delight in God more than in everything else in this world, do not despair, Christian. I hear God is still at work in you. And he, it says in Philippians 1.6, will do what with that work? Complete it. Won't that be a great day? He will get the glory that he, for the work that he began. He will get the glory for a job well done. So are we obligated to delight in God? Yes, we are, Christian friend. In fact, it's been commanded over and over in Scripture. Jesus said that the greatest commandment, in fact, was to love God God with what? Your whole heart. That sounds like delight to me. Psalm 37, 4, delight in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. So we're given examples of delighting in God. We're given commands to delight in God. We're given motivation to delight in God. All these gifts he promises, all these rewards he offers. Why does he do all this? Because unless we delight in God, we will never know true and complete and absolute joy. And God will never receive the glory that he deserves and that we owe. And so God sees to it that you will one day fully delight in him. And between now and then, the process brings glory to him. Even though you and I miserably fail regularly on it. You see, God is outside of time. He's not bound by time like you and I are. He he didn't have to, you know, oh, man, another day, another failure. That's not how God experiences time. He is outside of time. He sees beginning from end, the alpha and the omega. He sees what he started. He sees what he completed, and he received glory all along the way, all along our way. He's already there. So, delight and duty come together in our pursuit of God. Now, in your bulletins, um, you have an opportunity to uh, be happy in God, even though you don't get to fill out some blanks, all right? We're going to skip points A through D, and I'm going to see if you can just delight in God anyways, all right? So let's go to point three. The actions of delight. By the way, um, the first service handled that really well. Just to show you the standard. Okay. The actions of delight. What are some practical ways to improve your delight quotient? How can you bring your A game to the the a delight discussion. How do we delight in God? How do we pursue Him so that's not a burden? Well, the psalmist gives us some ideas in verses 15 and 16 that I wanna share with you. The first is, is found here in verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. So one way that we delight in God is by fixing our eyes. Fixing our eyes on a few things. Let me share with you some things that we might want to fix our eyes on if we're going to experience this delight in God as we should. First is this. Fix your eyes on him as a person. Do you know God is a person, right? Not a power or an entity or a concept. God is actually a person. And we need to think of him as such. It's much easier to enjoy a person than an idea, isn't it? It's actually delight in a person. That's why we read, rejoice in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. My soul thirsts for you, an individual. Hebrews 12, 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, it says. Which is our next point of fixing. Fix your eyes on him as your Savior. Not just as a person. Fix your eyes on him as your Savior, What does that mean? Well, you know why Jesus came, right? If he hadn't come, we would never be able to encounter, delight in God. And since God is is interested in uh, being eternally enjoyed by his creation, he's provided a way by which we can do that. And that way is called Jesus Christ, your Savior. Jesus came that we might actually experience delight in God. I love the way the Apostle Peter says this in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might do what? Bring us to God. Not bring us to heaven. Jesus didn't come to bring us to heaven, he didn't didn't come to bring us happy marriages, he didn't come to increase our earthly wealth. What did he come for? To bring us to God. He's our Savior. He's reconciled the sinner and a holy God. He's provided a way that you can have your sins forgiven by what he did on Calvary. He's provided a way that you can look perfectly holy in the sight of this holy God by crediting his righteousness to your account. By you giving him your sins and and taking his righteousness, we have this exchange taking place and allows us to experience God. God delightfully see Jesus is interested in bringing us to God so that we can fulfill our purpose of delighting eternally in our Creator like I referred earlier to John I mean John 17 3 this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Friends, you know what makes eternal life so attractive is not that it lasts forever, but that it's in knowing, enjoying, and delighting in a fully satisfying person who has saved us from our sin. So have you received him? Have you embraced him as your savior? Have you turned from selfishly pursuing This life without a second thought of God? Have you responded to God's call on your life? Come unto me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me. Have you responded to that? Knowing the call, knowing who Jesus is and what he came for, isn't sufficient. You must respond to God's call. You must say yes to God. Not just know what he requires. Not just know the stories. Not just know that he exists. You must respond personally and embrace the offer of forgiveness in Christ Jesus for you. Turn your back on your own agenda and follow God. Have you done that? You can do it right where you sit. And so I'm trying to help you see how you can delight in God. First, you must delight in his person. Secondly, delight in uh, what he has done. He He is a savior. Thirdly, Fix your eyes on his gifts. And you might say, well, wait a minute. That sounds like you've been telling us not to to get distracted by his gifts. Well, I have been telling you not to get distracted. I'm saying fix your eyes on his gifts. Don't get distracted by them. Those are two different things. I'll explain that here right now. How can you get to know God and delight in him by observing actions and ideas that he provides? Uh, What actions of God make him attractive to you? Think about it. What has God done? What has God revealed? What kind of gifts that reveal his actions and ideas that you appreciate, that you might even delight in? Let me give you an idea. 1 John 4, 9, we read this earlier in the day. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. How about that for starters? (laughs) Is that not delightful? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, So that instead of dying, you can live. I like the sounds of that. I could enjoy that. I delight in it, in fact. But it's not just those history-shaking events that cause us to delight in God. And there are many, by the way. But, But it's whatever action is good in this life. Whatever idea that is good or true. Whatever thing that we see or hear, or smell, or taste, or touch. Of all of God's creation, all of it is designed by God as a sign, a taste, a sample of what it's like to enjoy God himself. Your taste buds, God has designed to make you pursue him. You like the taste of honey. Do you think God's word talks about honey in God's word a little bit? hmm it does. That's to draw you to the creator of honey, to draw you to an interest in sweet things, taste and see that the Lord is good. All of it is designed to help us enjoy God. So fix your eyes on his good gifts. Think about, meditate on, verse 15, meditate On his good gifts. How does breathing draw you to God? How does your enjoyment of beauty draw you to God? How does your enjoyment of golf draw you to Christ? It is all connected by God's design. Spend some time thinking about it. Next, fix your eyes on his people. Fix your eyes not only on his person, not only as Savior, not only on his gifts, but fix your eyes on his people and his other believers, those who have embraced Christ. Do you know that we, as the local church, the local representation of the body of Christ, are intended by God to be a picture of Jesus Christ himself? Do you know that's part of the plan of God? Here's what this means, take all the best character traits from each of us and pour them together, and I said best character traits, not the bad ones, the best character traits in each of us and pour them into one person, and then multiply those qualities to the greatest degree of perfection, and you have a picture of Jesus Christ. Take that person's humility, take that person's graciousness, that person's mercy, That person's wisdom. Combine all those things and what do you have? You have a picture of Jesus Christ that God intended the church to give to you and me. See, I can look out here and see Christ because you each have gifts and qualities that combined make a pretty good picture of Jesus Christ. Which gives me a a better reason to appreciate you A better reason to seek out your company. A better reason to get to know you beyond Sunday morning in the lobby. Because you, combined with the others around you, fill out my understanding of Jesus Christ, my Savior. This puts a little bit of uh, importance on our relationships in the body of Christ, doesn't it? So friends, if you're someone who drifts in and out of here on Sunday mornings only for this particular hour... You're missing out on something God intends to bring you delight. Which is a revelation of himself in his people. Us. And it just doesn't stop here. It goes outside these walls. The world needs this picture of Jesus. That we together can bring. So verse 15 says that we will fix our eyes on your ways. Fix your eyes on God, and I've tried to share some things with you to help you do that. Next, verse 16, I will delight in your statutes, I will not forget. Forgetfulness, I think, is uh, one of the many causes of spiritual decline in our lives. The reason that I drift in my relationship with Christ a lot of times is because I forget some aspect of who he is for me. I forget his goodness to me, I forget his love, his patience, his kindness, his mercy. And in that forgetfulness I begin to neglect him and live in spite of him and end up in trouble. And I don't think I'm unique in this experience. This is why there's so many Psalms that are written that are historical Psalms that are actually designed to remind the people of Israel, to remind God's people of different aspects of his goodness. You read through these Psalms and the psalmist goes, you remember when we were in the the desert and and this happened and then that happened and then God did this and then that. And and he's just saying, remember, don't forget. So as we read the word of God, not just the Psalms but From Genesis to Revelation, as we delight in the word of God, God through his spirit opens up that word, as it says in verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. God opens up his word so that we may delight in it, the author. The author of this word. So, read it, listen to it, pray it, sing it, rehearse it. Memorize it because this is the path to delight. Let me give you some closing pastoral thoughts. I've called them bottom line thoughts just to help you maybe a little bit more um, able to experience delight in your pursuit of God in case it's not there yet. Uh, First is this. Ask God for spiritual taste buds. I was listening to a little Ask Pastor John Piper podcast, video podcast thing. And I was looking um, according to the topic, and I clicked on delight in preparation for these last two sermons. And he said that. Someone asked him, how am I supposed to delight in God? And he said that, that was his first answer. Pray and ask God to give you spiritual taste buds. You have physical taste buds that help you enjoy food. Why not ask for spiritual taste buds that can only be given by the Holy Spirit so that you'll delight in God and the things of God? Is that not a prayer within the will of God? Does he not want you to delight in him? He does want you to delight in him because he's commanded it. So why don't you just pray and ask God to create those spiritual taste buds so that you will enjoy, look forward to, Time with God, time with God's people, time in his word. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are falling to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, the one without Christ, doesn't have spiritual taste buds. We do. Ask God to improve them. Next pastoral thought, prepare your heart for the feast. If God is truly the supreme delight, then any encounter we would have with him could be defined as a feast, right? So prepare your heart for that feast whenever it might encounter, whenever you might encounter it. And I, I got an illustration for you here that might help you understand what I'm saying. When, when you're looking forward to the Thanksgiving meal with all the turkey, mashed potatoes, homemade bread, pumpkin, gravy, all that stuff, uh, here's what you don't do. You don't eat a bunch of Oreos and gummy bears right before the meal, right? If you do, let me talk to your mom, all right? You don't do that kind of stuff because you want to enjoy the feast, right? In the same way, we need to prepare for our times with God and his word by not filling up on a bunch of spiritual Oreos and gummy bears, before that time. We shouldn't be filling our minds with anything that would inhibit the delightful intake of God from his word. And of course the obvious things that we should avoid before we come into worship, before you enter your your private times of worship at home or with your family, the things that we should obviously avoid are things like lustful thoughts, envy, revengeful daydreaming, a coveting of any kind. Those are the obvious things, right? Well, the less obvious things we should also avoid, and those things are called weights in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, let us throw off as we seek Christ, as we pursue Christ and fix our eyes, let's throw off everything that is a sin or a weight. So weight and sin are two different things. Weights can be good things. Um, They're different from sin. So I'm, I'm asking you to to consider the possibility that these weights that we need to throw off are are the less obvious things that might distract us from delighting in God. Things like the internet. If you want to have a a enjoyable spiritual feast, you probably shouldn't fill your mind with the internet right before you go to that time. You probably shouldn't fill your mind with worldly excitement. Not that worldly excitement's bad, but it's just not probably the best way to present a feast. Like having your daily quiet time at halftime of a football game. I got five minutes. You know, it's like probably not the best idea. That's spiritual gummy bears. Okay? Um, Business thoughts. You know, you probably should try to empty your mind of all things business as you look forward to the feast with God. Which, by the way, when we come in here on Sunday mornings, we're trying to train everybody here, when you come in, to settle down. Turn off your phones. Sit quietly. Prepare for the feast. That's what we are intending to do here. Sometimes Jeremy has to go, excuse me? Excuse me? We want to begin? You know, (laughs) We, we, we create an atmosphere on purpose to draw you into that feast of God. Next, be accountable. Look at verse 16. Well, 15 and 16, really. I will meditate, verse 16. I will delight. Man, would you be willing to say that? I'm going to read the Bible through eight times this year. I'm going to lose... 30 pounds this year, you save that publicly, you're in trouble because then you got a mass of accountability partners. This guy says it, he says, I will meditate and I will delight. Please hold me accountable is what's going on here. Hold me accountable, which is why it might be a good idea for you to share some of your spiritual goals with someone other than your spouse. He or she will always be quick to forgive and not really load the burden on, you might need some loading. So share it with some people who will hold you accountable. Maybe that's your spouse. In my case, I know she will forgive me like that. So that doesn't really help me a lot. I need to tell you folks, I'm gonna lose blank weight this year. <laughs> this happened in our small group here last week. Not that statement, but um, our small group's starting to share how we're going to read through the Bible this year as couples or individuals. And so far, we've actually, I mean, we're not all that far into the year, but we've talked about it, and we're going to continue to talk about it. This kind of public announcement that I'm going to do something raises the bar, right? I'd encourage you to do it. Be accountable. I will not forget your word. Next, pay attention. Uh, I've heard it said where there is attention, there is retention. Where there is attention, there is retention. Are you paying attention when you're reading the Bible? Or are you trying to speed read your way through that thing and get it done? Check that box. Are you paying attention during the sermon? This means you're not. All right, And I know it gets hot in here and I get boring sometimes, but hey, pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to what you're reading. Pay attention to what's being preached or taught. Meditate on the sermon. Uh, I, I read last week that one sermon meditated on is worth 20 not meditated on. I got an idea. Why don't you get together during the week sometime and talk about what this sermon's about. Just a random group of people. Maybe you're a small group. That's an idea. Just get together with somebody this week and talk about the sermon. It requires you to pay attention during the sermon and cements it in your mind after you've discussed it. One sermon meditated on is better than 20 not meditated on. You remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection and he ran into these two disciples And these two disciples spent time talking to Jesus, and they said this after he left. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? (laughs) They talked about it. They talked about the scriptures. And their hearts burned within them. And it was a delightful burn. So, like Hebrews 2 says... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Pay attention. And of course, finally, get organized. Buy a journal, three-ring binder, whatever you're comfortable with. Start recording what you're reading. Start recording what you're thinking about. Start recording your prayers. Get organized. Psalm 119, 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Amazing. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us life by your word. Your spirit has grabbed our hearts. Help us see you in your word. And now we are here thinking about you, rejoicing in who you are, delighting in our creator. Help us to do that more and more. Help us to fix our eyes, Father, on you. Help us to fix our eyes on you on your son, Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.